Mr. Brandon, are you free? I'm free. I'm Brandon. And I'm Jeff. And this is That Does Suit Madam, a podcast about Are You Being Served? Hello. Hello. Happy quarantine. Happy quarantine. Week something. Who knows? Day 47. <laughs> Hope again. Everyone is being very healthy and safe and washing their hands, staying at home, not going to the beaches of Florida or any place. Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Stay at home, people, and watch Are You Being Served and listen to podcasts. Here in the New York area, we're starting to, you know, we're really starting to see the curve flatten out. And they're starting to make plans about um, reopening up uh, the economy and certain services. Uh, Our friends in the UK, we know you're about two weeks behind us in terms of uh, the curve of this. So, you know, we're thinking of everybody who still uh, has to get through it. Um, And, yeah, just stay at home. Watch Are You Being Served. Listen to us. (laughs) And uh, write us email. Uh, and speaking of, uh, we want to read a fan letter that we got a little while ago. This one is from Gary, uh, and it reads, "Dear Sexy Nick." Uh, it reads, Easy for you "Dear to say. Sexy Nick." <laughs> <laughs> Dear Sexy Nickers, I finally got to use that quote without fear of prosecution. I found your superb podcast yesterday. You've all done very well. Oh, Gary, you're uh, our I look favorite. forward to listening to more soon. <laughs> uh, as, of the kid of ni- as a kid of the 1980s and a native of northern England, Mr. Humphreys and Mrs. Slocum's neck of the woods, it's great to hear your views on this end of the peer British comedy. Did you ever watch the American pilot version, Beans of Boston? Best wishes and good luck. I'm off to give Mrs. Slocum's pussy some attention, Gary. Thank you, Gary. First time that's ever been said on this rather homosexually laden podcast, I should say, Jeff. That's very interesting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome, Gary. Thank you for um, leaving us that lovely email. We've gotten lots of emails. um, And we have a special surprise later in the episode that I'll uh, mention about a special um, that does suit Madam Call Center that we've commissioned in Mississippi <laughs> to take your calls people um but yeah out of all of the start the uh the, the, the cool um are you being served stuff I know I had no idea that there was an American version so Gary you win like the prize you win what 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 are you being served prize could he win um uh this shout out this email being read live <laughs> that is your prize Gary air. Yeah, it was just, your prize, Gary. There's no award that's been given on an episode, but anyway, maybe a, the, Mr. Mr. Grace's uh, yachting prize. How about that? There we go. But that was really cool. So um, apparently, this episode Jeff was just saying before the show, it is on uh, YouTube. So maybe we'll have to have a lost episode of the podcast where we get dive into that. But I don't know. It, yeah. it's difficult to to replicate. Are you being served? Right. Yeah, that no, it does sound like a really good idea. It was I knew about it, but I've never seen it. Um, you know, there was an Australian version that ran for I think two seasons, uh, and then obviously there was the sequel and the movie. Um, but Beans of Boston was a pilot that they did 
uh, to try and replicate it. Uh, it starred Charlotte Ray, otherwise known as Mrs. Garrett from Facts of Life, <laughs> as yeah, totally. the um, Mrs. Slocum character. And also Tom Poston, I believe, who was the mailman on Newhart. I think he played the Mr. Granger character. Um, and so they did uh, a pilot episode. It never got picked up. It never got the attention. Uh, they actually did um, – they recreated the, the German Week episode. Uh, uh, that's a good one. Which is a really strange one to try to recreate as well as trying to introduce the characters. But um, I think we should watch it. Uh, and if, maybe when we, once we get closer to German Week, we could do a little compare and contrast. Yeah, or you know, we could also do a thing – I love that we're like planning the podcast on the show. But hey, it's interesting. Um, we could also do like a um, – maybe the lost epi- – or like um, – the copycat episodes of are you being served you know there was the australian version which was very interesting because john inman like moved to sydney and moved to australia his character moved to australia yeah, for and it. Like, yeah why i mean did i don't know so many questions come from that like back in the 70s was it impossible to take a show from the uk to australia so they just had to remake it like i don't know i mean and then there's like this weird american version which isn't it's kind of a different variant of it. I don't know. It could, it could be interesting, but um, obviously they tried to bottle what was that lightning in the bottle or whatever the phrase is, and it didn't work. But, you know, at least we have all 70-ish episodes. So, Yeah, and yeah. very very often it, it, it doesn't work. You know, um, they tried really hard to bring uh, Kath and Kim over here yes. with yes. Uh, Molly Shannon and Selma Blair. And it was mildly amusing for what it was, but it just can't compare to the original. Yeah, I think, um, I think the cool thing about it is how foreign it is. And it's like this whole kind of like the love of this podcast. Like there's so many jokes and weird story plots and stuff that you really have to look into and dive a little bit, which is kind of what this is all about, which is part of the fun for me in a way. Yeah, they, they I mean with Kath and Kim, they try to replicate Bogan culture. So what is Kath and Kim with- in case people don't know? So yeah. So anyway, so Kath and Kim is an Australian sitcom from the uh, early two thousands that focuses on um, this Bogan family from uh, the Melbourne suburbs. What is Bogan? Bogan is <laughs> see. There really isn't that, that equivalent in American culture, right? They try to make it with like middle class trash in Tampa, which I think was first of all brilliant to whatever. Uh, a screenwriter decided to set it in Tampa. That is all the of perfect like, American bogan right there. But yeah, it's hard right. to translate what bogan means, isn't it? Yeah, because it's like it's very something that's very uniquely Australian. You know, if you think about you know uh, a trashy Florida, Flor- you know Florida man. We love our listeners um, in Florida, of course. Of course we do. <laughs> and you know, if you think about like council lads, maybe I mean, there's there's always in, in every culture there's this kind of it's not necessarily like low, lower class or uneducated because I mean they have a little bit of money mm. even though they're you're always talking about money problems. But anyway, my point is that it didn't translate well to American culture. But yeah. you take a sitcom, you take a sitcom like Man About the House, which did okay in the UK. You bring it to the U.S. and it becomes all in the family, and it's a hit. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. See, this is why this this podcast deserves a five star review because I, I, as in every episode, 
Jeff will just throw this his knowledge down on the table and boom. I didn't know that. About- sorry, sorry, I, I, I misspoke. Man About the House was what uh, inspired Three's Company. Okay, four stars. An- four stars. It's still it was good. another show. <laughs> it was another show that did All in the Family. But anyway, those two translated very well. They ended up having their own <laughs> s- several spinoffs. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about Indeed. that. We're here to talk about <laughs> diamonds are a man's best friend. Yes, but before we do, I just in, in 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 vain of in the vein of Gary's leaving that fabulous email, which taught us so much about the show and the American layer to it. I did kind of preview the fact that we have the new uh, that does suit Madam hotline. So I just want to let people know in the beginning of the show that if you want to leave us a voicemail, we've gotten a couple of wonderful little messages. We have a hotline. We have a, we hired a whole staff of people in northern Mississippi, a call center devoted directly only for That Does Suit Madam podcast. At great expense, we shall add. So please give us a call. Um, the number is very easy to remember. It's 662-PEACOCK. 662-732-2625. So if you ever want to leave a, me- a message to us, uh, an idea, a question... Do it, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So there we go. So what episode are we learning about today, Mr. Jeff? So we are here to talk about the Series 1 finale, Diamonds Are a Man's Best Friend. And they are. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It premiered on April 18th, 1973. And that week in the news, FedEx started operating. Okay, from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, that's uh, what, is it, yeah, is that's it? where it's based. So uh, it's like a huge, huge deal in Memphis, the Federal Express. So right, wow. okay, big employer for the Go region. Tigers, I think, or something. I don't know. I feel like every southern state is a tiger. So. Well, that's they're all in um, <laughs> in Oklahoma with uh, Tiger King, but that's a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also in this week, George Lucas started uh, the treatment for Star Wars. I've oh, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yuma, people, Yuma. I'm using Yuma. Um, Right. So this episode uh, uses some very classic uh, plot devices. It starts off with everyone being skint for the week. It's right before a payday. Nobody has any money. Everybody's borrowing money from from each other. For the lunch, yeah. No money. But the, the main part of the story is the hunt. Uh, a, a customer claims to have lost a diamond in the store. And so whenever there is a TV show or a game or a movie or whatever uh, where there's a hunt for an item that is interchangeable with any other uh, expensive item or sought item and is really irrelevant to the plot, um, that's called a MacGuffin. Hmm. Uh, in other words, we have to find the thing before someone else does. So it's, it's literally the plot of the show or the drama of the show. Right. If you think about the movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, that also relied on a MacGuffin as its plot device. Right? I've never seen that. I'm um, trying to think of a, like, a, like a modern movie. Um... I've been racking my brain for other examples because I know that like every long-running sitcom has at least one of these. Yeah. Where like we all have to find the thing before – our neighbor does, or our frenemy does, well, or what whatever. About the epi- I guess you could do it in the reverse. The episode of The Simpsons where the the guys, uh, the folks, all agree not to pleasure themselves, and then it's no, like whoever lasts the longest. That was Seinfeld. What did I say? 
You said Simpsons. Oh, my God. Seinfeld. <laughs> I need more tea, apparently, people. Seinfeld, yeah, but um, the, the four people all agree not to pleasure themselves in a sexual manner. Um, and whoever lasts the longest wins. So it's kind of like a MacGuffin. The master of their own domain. Yeah, right. Kind of. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't again, know. But anyway. Again, with the Jeff knowledge on this podcast. Move that four to up to a five-star rating, people. Okay, he, he wins his back, so that's good. Yay. <laughs> um, so anyway, the term, uh, Hitchcock was the one who originated it. And it's based on an old vaudeville joke, which goes a little something like this. Uh, two guys are on a train. One pulls out a really odd-looking thing, and the other fellow says, well, what is that you got there? And he goes, it's a MacGuffin. It's used for hunting lions in Scotland. So the first guy goes, well, there are no lions in Scotland. So the second guy goes, well, I guess this isn't a MacGuffin then. <laughs> okay. Um, That's actually so kind of cool. You know, I like that. It's, you know, a, a kind of a, a useless but valuable thing. Um, it's like the phrase I always of, like to say, a cat can have kittens in the oven, but it doesn't make them biscuits. I have never heard you say that. <laughs> then I guess I've never said it. Hmm. A cat can have kittens in the oven, <laughs> a cat can, but that yeah, doesn't make A cat can have kittens biscuits. in the oven, but it doesn't make them biscuits. I don't know if that's brilliant it makes you or think, whatever though, the opposite of brilliant it? is. It does. It does. <laughs> and it helps if you say it in a southern accent. So. You know, it probably would. A cat can, can have can kittens in pull? the oven, but it doesn't make them biscuits. There you See, go. Now, now it makes more sense. That leaves it, that lends it a little bit more credence. <laughs> Yeah. So, all right. Anyway, so about this episode, how does it start? Um, so everyone's kind of wandering around. It's a Friday. And back in the day, like, you didn't get no direct deposit. You got cash, like, cash money and an envelope. You got envelope. an envelope full of cash. Yeah. And everyone was kind of like, so there's a scene where Mr. Granger walks around and says, Captain Peacock, what, please? And, and he's essentially saying, remember that pound coin, or I guess back then a note, Remember that pound note I loaned you last week? I need it back because I don't have any money. I forgot it. And then Captain Peacock's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I uh, I forgot it on my color television set, which is cute because when uh, Mr. Granger says, Stephen, I'm so sorry. I forgot my my purse. He calls it a purse instead of a wallet. I, I forgot my purse on the on the wireless, which is a radio. So you picture like cute little Mr. Granger on the having his brekkies at his little kitchen table and he has his little wallet on his radio. But then of course, as, as is normal for Captain Peacock to one up and he's got to one up. He has to one up him and he has to like say, Oh, I am, I'm the top, the top of the pyramid in the store. He says, Oh, I left mine on my color television set, which is at the time, color television, color, set. which is at the color. time was probably like three months pay for someone to buy right? a color, a color TV back then. So anyway, and so everyone, it's kind of like, oh, no one has money. That's what they want us to know. Like, no one's, everyone's borrowing from everybody. Right. Miss Brahms was late because she didn't have any money for bus fare. She had to hitchhike. <laughs> we later find out that um, Mrs. Slocum loaned her a pound last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody has any money, right? Um, it's this whole, it's another trope where people are borrowing money from each other. So uh, no one has any money. They're all making kind of chit-chat. Um, and, uh, Humphreys, Mr. Humphreys is talking about what he did last night. And he said that, uh, I got a bit cross. I slammed the oven door and me Yorkshire's wouldn't rise. 
I didn't know which way to turn, which was very unusual for me. Which, at the, when I was a kid, like, Yorkshire's not rising. I assumed it was some sort of souffle. But, of course, have we discussed what a Yorkshire pudding is on the show yet? I don't think we have. We have. Uh, you know we haven't? No, I don't think oh, so, so, no. Oh, gosh. Um, do you, well, I'll explain. So, Yorkshire pudding is basic, basic, basic food is. So, you take sausages or something. You cook the sausages and you have all the lovely, mm, like, fat, the, the liquefied fat at the bottom of a pan. So then you make the simplest little batter, and then you put the um, the drippings of the, the sausages in the oven for really, really hot temperature. And then essentially you throw the batter inside the super hot oil, and it kind of explodes inside the dish, and it kind of makes a big puffy pastry thing. And as a kid, I was like, I don't know what that means. I'm just going to gla- glaze over that. Um, but as you get older, you learn all these funny things on podcasts like this, right? Yeah, the closest thing we have to that in the States is called a popover. So it's just like really kind of it, – it's a, it's a chewy dough. It's not really that flaky. Mm. It, it, it's round like a sphere and it's really hollow. Almost like right? a popadum in Indian food almost, but different. But not as crispy. Not as crispy, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit more chewy. So, yeah. but, but I also anyway. – uh, when he says – I didn't know which way to turn, which was unusual for me. I knew that was something about him being gay because everyone laughs. And he has that little, which was unusual for me. Whenever he goes up like that, it means it's something gay. But do you know what that means? Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's, I mean, it, it is It is a, a blatant uh, reference to homosexual acts, uh, you know, about, you know, being like a shirt flap lifter and all of that. Mm, okay. uh, but you, but you're, you're right. It is just a... Uh, a turn of phrase that he magically um, gives a connotation to with the little uh, pitch in his off. <laughs> he, he could say, he could say like, and I turned the page or anything he wanted to. And I'd be like, that's adorable. I'm going to love it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Mr. Humphrey's friend comes by and she says, you left in such a hurry. I forgot to give you the keys to the flat. And Mr. Lucas is flabbergasted. He can't believe that, um, Mr. Humphreys is friends with such a beautiful woman. He doesn't, you know, know where to put two and two together, I guess, because in his own head, you know, he's already pegged uh, Mr. Humphreys is gay, thinks he hangs out, hangs out exclusively with men. Uh, but then we get a little bit of a punchline, uh, which is borderline transphobic. I don't know. It, it, again, it's of the times. Um, but Humphrey says he's so much more settled since he's had the operation. Yeah, and that, this is something that jumped out at, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean just to be over you. Um, it it um it jumped out it jumped out at me as well. Um, a lot of times, you know, we really do have to consider the time that this was made. Um, and of course, you know, we're both gay men and proud members of the LGBT community. And um, one of the reasons I love the show so much, Are You Being Served, is that it it doesn't directly talk about homosexuality and like gay culture, but Damn it, it got awfully close. You know, and the fact that the audience, when, especially in the later episodes, when Mr. Humphreys would come out wearing an overtly gay outfit, they would clap and cheer. Camp. Yeah. And it it sort of became like a pride thing. I mean, you could never say it. He could never actually say he was gay. So there's like proto-embryonic pride kind of folded into this show. Now, that said... And we get other we get other characters, like minor characters, like customers who are clearly gay and hitting on Mr. Right. Humphrey. So, you know, we, we do get that. But I guess as long as it's not one of the main cast, it was, quote unquote, OK 
to have them be out. So the reason why, you know, this is kind of questionable at best is not necessarily because of the punchline, but because of Mr. Lucas's reaction, facial reaction. It's mostly confusion, but there's a twinge of disgust in there as well. Right. And now, so, that's what I was going to mention is that, like, there's the gay male, you know, uh, Mr. Humphreys thing. But then, I mean, even today on television, um, jokes about someone's gender or, like, um, being transgender or cross-dressing or anything around uh, among that umbrella, it's especially in the 70s, it was the easiest Lowest common denominator, cheapest. It was an gag. easy joke. Yeah, super, super easy gag. And, you know, you kind of see Mr. Humphreys saying, you know what? He's so much more himself after he's had the operation. Kind of a supportive, like, I'm so glad my friend did this. He's, of course, misgendering her. And, of course, the actress is like this beautiful, like, va, 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 voom, like, kind of wearing like the big wigs, 1970s hair. But, yeah, it was it was disappointing to see Mr. Hump, Mr. Lucas sort of give the key to the audience. Okay, this is what's funny because it's strange, it's unknown, yeah. right? So, but they've been doing gender affirmation surgeries throughout all of time. Yeah. Like you go back, you know, when they've um, gone through like Egyptian remains and Greeks and Romans. There's been evidence of this. You know, uh, the first one in the U.S. Uh, took place in 1917. Uh, and it actually picked up uh, a lot of steam in the 70s when the town of Trinidad, Colorado became uh, the sex change capital because that's what uh, gender affirmation surgeries were called at the time. Uh, and uh, the doctor, uh, the, the hospital there was taken over in the year 2003 by a trans woman, Marcy Bowers, uh, who became the first trans woman in history to perform a gender affirmation surgery. So little bit of your LGBT history to go along with your ABYS. Yeah, uh, Marcy Bowers, I'm actually, it's funny, I'm friends with her on Facebook. <laughs> um, but she's still doing it. Like she, even during quarantine, she's still doing it. And like some pretty high profile trans people like had their, conf their um, uh, gender confirmation surgeries with her and she's still doing it. Um, there's a really famous trans woman, and I'm just looking it up right now, uh, in the 50s. And uh, I can't remember... But, you know, there's, I mean, even today, there's a lot of places in the country where you can still get fired if you're trans. There's lots of bathroom bills, bullshit, um, still going around. Um, so, you know, I'm glad you mentioned it, that it was something a little concerning in this episode. But, um, yeah, so uh, we love the trans folks out there. And I don't, I can't find the name of the woman in the 50s. But there's a really great documentary on Netflix or something all about her. In 1957, I think she had a, a, a confirmation surgery in Amsterdam or something. And she came back and she was sort of like... Oh, Sweden. 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 You know who I, I'm talking about. Um, I do. I, I, the name escapes me as well. Oh, well. Yeah. Part two. Episode, anyway. episode next, we'll, we'll, do, we'll mention it. But Well, you know what? Th this, this isn't the last time that we get this kind of uh, joke. Yeah, that's true. Someone questioning someone's gender or that being the reveal. So we'll do our research or homework the next time and be prepared, more prepared to talk about it. Yeah. Well, look at the time. You know what? I think it's about time for our tea break. So I'm going to go down. Do you want to join me, Jeff? Let's, why don't we go down to the canteen? Sure. Let's we can go. Grab a bit of something. What do you think you might fancy? Rizzles. Rizzles. I think I'm going to try that spotted dick. I heard, I heard the uh, manageress uh, saying it was pretty good this time. So we're going to nip down to the, to the canteen, have a bit of tea and a little bit of lunch. We'll be right back. 
Oh, that canteen manageress was in a right state. Ugh, and could you imagine how dirty that place was? Ugh, I don't oh, want to think about it. Do? All right, so we're back on the episode. So we're back. So Rumbold calls Peacock into his office uh, to distribute the pay packets, uh, and Peacock's is missing. Remind, remember that he left his note case on top of his color television set, so he, he still doesn't have any money for lunch. He can't go to the executive canteen with Rumbold. He's probably going to have to go down to Beppo's and scrounge for a coffee. <laughs> Can I jump in? Just before people, I'm sure the people at home are screaming in their iPhones, Christine Jorgensen is the woman whose there name we go. were trying to remember. So now you can all stop screaming at your phone and sending us voicemails, Christine Jorgensen. Sorry, go ahead. No hate mail, please. No hate mail. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so he, of course, he throws, Captain Peacock throws, oh, my color television set. And it's funny because he mentions that several times. He's very proud of that color television set. Well, it was a big deal in 1973. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even in the States, it was. I mean, in, in, in the UK, they only had, what, three channels at that time. So how much, you know, color was there to actually watch? Probably not a lot, actually. So we get a little bit more insight into into how much things cost in 1973 London uh, because Ms. Brahms is complaining that they've taken out £4.62 in tax, right? Mm. So uh, the average wage for a man in 1973 London was £41 per week or about £2,100 per year. Wow. And that's for a man. And you know back then they were definitely paying women less um, even though they probably still well, do today, today, I think a woman in America earns 71 cents for every dollar, 78 cents, 77 some, cents, yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. Right. Anyway, uh, the lowest tax bracket in England in 1973 was making under 5,000 pounds a year. And that tax bracket was 30%. So if we divide the 462 by 30% and do the math and blow it out, it might be possible that she only made 800 pounds per year. Whoa. Which sounds like, it sounds like a tiny bit of money. We later find out that Mr. Lucas is supposed to be getting 19 pounds per week, which is uh, 988 pounds per year. So that, you know, holds water to the, the math we did for Mrs. Brahms, 800 pounds a year. Mm. And so the 988 that... Mr. Locust was bringing home a year is the equivalent of $13,000 today. Now, remember that these two characters, first of all, they were on commission and they didn't make a lot of commission because they got last pick. But still, that just goes to show you what, you know, how far your pound could actually go if it was reasonable to stay alive on 19 pounds a week. You know, not necessarily live comfortably because, you know, Mr. Lucas is living with his deaf mother in Highgate with uh, uh, the border and the deaf cat. <laughs> Brahms is still living at home. Yeah. But, you know, that's how much, um, that's how much they Yeah, it's interesting because Mr. Um, Mr. Lucas on the gentleman's side, you know, they always, it's funny because the shows always go like the women first and then the men or the men first and they always kind of go back and forth and they kind of repeat the same storyline in both gender department's way. Um, and then Mr. Lucas says, oh, national health, one pound 16 or something. Um, of course, these days, I think it's about $400 per month and uh, $5,000 deductible. But that's a whole other discussion, isn't it, people? Um, I don't think they have deductibles in no, the No, no, I'm talking about today. That's what, you Oh, know. about us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. But it was like when they said national health, one pound, and he was complaining about it. I was like, oh, you know, oh, well. 
<laughs> 10-pound contribution to the Grace Brothers Social Club. Yeah, exactly. And a 20-peak uh, Grace Brothers uh, staff home where they all go to retire. Again, crazy to think that this department store has <laughs> yeah. own retirement home. Well, back in the day, I guess, yeah, like like I mentioned before, those uh, companies would like – that was your world and your whole life. You think of like like um, Selfridges, like that was those – the characters on Selfridges, the, the TV show about the, the department store in London, that was their life. Like they lived for that store and everyone they knew, like your grandparents and great-grandparents especially, they probably met each other based on where they worked, you know, like, I mean, a lot of people meet where they work. Yeah, stuff, very but true. Especially back then. That was, it was a huge part of your life. Now it's sort of not, now you're, now you can be replaced and they'll, there'll be someone new on your desk tomorrow, different right. times. But you know, that was kind of a facet of the old times that Grace Brothers had, I think. But that was kind of also poking fun at what an old fashioned institution the, the store was, right? It was, but it also gave us a little bit of insight into how much things cost, yeah. which sets up the whole, you know, it gives us the impetus uh, uh, behind the plot. The people need money. It, it sets that urgency because <laughs> people need money, right? So Mr. Humphreys is trying to sell a sweater to a woman. He asks, you know, what size is your fiance? And she goes, oh, he's about your build and he's ginger. Hysterical, right? Because we've got a little double entendre here. She's meaning that he's red-haired, mm. uh, but... Humphreys you know, gets a twinkle in his eye thinking maybe she means something else. So I always thought that the other meaning of ginger to like hint at someone being gay was that something was very, you know, he was like kind of sensitive to the touch. She's very like pristine and, and prissy or pale and, just, like, and, you know, like sweet. Right. Yeah. But it actually turns out that it's another example of Cockney rhyming slang. No way. Ginger beer queer. What? So ginger, oh, so many more of those jokes actually make more sense now. Uh, yeah. I remember one episode where he says something about like a cat and he's ginger and then suddenly he turned his head interesting, you know. That's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> and, and, and I think we might have to do a live stream video for that because the way that I'm he, up to it. He's leaning his elbow at the end of the table at the in the cafeteria in the canteen, listening in to a conversation that Miss Slocum oh, and Miss Brown are having at the end of the table. And uh, <laughs> Mrs. Slocum's cat is pregnant, but she's making it sound like she's the one who's. And pregnant. then he comes in after the fact and doesn't know that she's talking about his her cat. So she right. Yeah, so okay. we've got a freeze company eavesdropping situation. <laughs> And so they're trying to figure out who the father is. And Miss Brahms goes, he's ginger, isn't he? And like his elbow just drops off the table. <laughs> Subtlest move, but it is a prime example I, of physical. So again, five stars, people, because this is so interesting. Um, ginger beer equals queer, which means ginger. Okay, not redheaded, but I had no idea. There you go. So you actually had mentioned that there was another another example of Cockney rhyming slang that came up in this episode. Yeah, so um, I remember the scene was with in the gentleman's department with Mr. Lucas, and he was saying, "Oh, let let's have a butcher's." And I thought because I because of this podcast, honestly, um, again five stars. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking about all of the words I don't instantly understand, and because of the cultural difference between being you know British person and the American person. As a kid, there were so many words that would just fly by me over my head, and I would just kind of like ignore them. But as I've gotten older and through the podcast and talking with Jeff, all of the words I don't get, I now like 
focus on. And one of them was butchers. And I thought, why the hell would he be talking about butchers? And I've learned just like ginger and apples and pears and all these things. Okay, say it and then think about a word that rhymes with it. And that's probably what it is. So butchers hook is short for butcher's hook right because right. there's always it's always a second word or they've clipped exactly it. so let's have a so look it's butcher's hook and it, it helped too because essentially i don't remember the i think they were trying to look at something and they were all looking maybe at something probably one of the diamonds. Of the diamonds yeah and mr lucas said let's have a butcher's in the space that he would normally say let's have a look like he was bending down looking at something so it kind of you know context clues so butcher's hook sounds like look so yeah, it, it works when you have the time. But like again, like I've said, in the UK, like if you don't know Cockney rhyming slang, you cannot understand what people say. It's crazy. You're gonna miss out it's English, on a lot, but of... just barely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we I guess originated we're, the language. We're the ones that are, are different, I suppose. But anyway. So anyway, a little bit more insight into money. Uh, Mr. Mash uh, delivers the alterations from the weekend. He's showing off his wad of cash. <laughs> Uh, with all of the overtime that his team had to do to make up after a strike, he got 60 pounds that week. So you compare so that to Mr. Lucas's is, ni- yeah. 19 pounds. Yeah, that's that. And uh, some of the dresses that the ladies' department are selling are 44 pounds each. That's crazy. She'd have to save up for an entire month just to buy a dress without being able to afford anything else. So what would you say today, like very, very roughly? That would be like five or 600 bucks a dress? About that, yeah, because yeah. because yeah. with once you convert it into dollars, the inflation rate is probably about a thousand percent over the past fifty years. Whoa. So yeah. Anyway, so um, uh, Mr. Humphreys ends up selling the woman uh, a gentleman's pair of gloves, and she realizes that the center stone from her necklace is missing. Uh, she says that it's three carats and it's worth over a thousand pounds. Can I stop you really quickly? I just want to point out that we have a bit of a foreshadowing, or maybe wonderful gay happenstance but if you think about the episode this woman who comes in she's wearing like a mink very 70s headpiece that you can tell is real mink because it's beautiful fur um well you know don't don't i'm I'm anti-fur but it looks pretty um she comes in looking like a million bucks there's a layer there's an episode later where mr humphreys is almost wearing the same outfit same outfit. Yeah. Right. So a little foreshadowing there. Yeah. But it's it's nice because <laughs> she's so rich and it's it's cute because she doesn't even What is she doing here? Yeah, exactly. Like why are you here? But um it's just kind of setting up the episode. But there's another yeah. there's another customer who comes in and she's just I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it. Oh, these look nice. And you can tell the people were just hungry for that, for her to buy something. And she's like a looky-loo and walks away. But then this woman who comes in with this, this black mink hat thing, um, she's just sort of like talking. And she's like, you can tell it's like a social, it's a hobby for her to shop, right? And at one yeah. point, she's like, oh, I lost my diamond. And then Mr. Humphrey says, oh, perhaps you, you, you had it lost in your Rolls Royce on the way up here for, the, for your day of shopping. And she didn't even flinch. Right, because it, she it probably, probably definitely <laughs> took a Rolls Royce over. Right? Oh, funny. She offers a 100 pounds reward to anyone who finds the stone. And then Mr. Humphreys and Lucas agree to work together to find it. Um, Lucas spots it or thinks he spots it uh, on the ground near Peacock's feet. 
So uh, he stamps over it to kind of obscure it. And we get a little bit of physical comedy with Peacock thinking he's got three feet for a second. Yeah, physical comedy. You don't see that anymore. It's very 70s and 80s and it kind of stops, right? Yeah. And Humphreys retrieves the, the diamond. Rumbled comes out and announces that he got a call from a customer and says that there's a reward of 75 pounds to be divided amongst everyone once it's found. So Rumbled's going to pocket 25 and then split up the 75 amongst everyone else once it's found. Mm. Shady of Mr. Rumbold, the top manager, he's skinned for money well, too. Well, he's got low set ears, you know, that's, you can tell. Yeah. So, <laughs> this is a joke on the show. Rumbold thinks he fi- finds a diamond as well. He picks it up, puts it in his pocket, unbeknownst to everyone else. So, how are there possibly two diamonds? Hmm. It's a head scratch with that. Sounds one. like ripe for an episode of a funny show. Yeah. yeah. So, um, they're, they're trying to figure out whether or not Peacock is cut in. Does he count as a member of the department? Uh, well, they start saying whoever finds it should get the lion's share. Peacock disagrees. Then he spots a diamond on the floor. He changes his mind. He goes over and um, pulls the same foot trick with Mrs. Slocum, where he puts his foot in between hers. She looks down and sees three feet. Uh, Peacock ends up picking up the diamond, putting his mouth and speaking with a garbled effect. <laughs> It's it's a lot of like it, I, I was saying to Jeff earlier that this episode is not one of my favorites because I'd say maybe like the middle third of the episode is just sort of like them walking around trying to find the diamond and then like hiding the diamond from each other and there's no good language and dialogue. That's my favorite part. It's a MacGuffin. Rumble calls the woman. We've located the stone. Make the, the reward payable personally to me because he's going to cheat everyone else out of the 25 pounds. <laughs> Humphreys and Lucas are g- getting onto this. And here's that other cockney rhyming sling. I forgot oh, about boy, this. Okay. Um, Humphrey says, use your loaf to Lucas. Oh, yeah. Loaf of bread, head. So use your head. So that's three in this um, episode. That's crazy. Lo- use your loaf. Okay. So um, Humphreys and Lucas have to pretend to look. So they'll give the stone directly to the woman, take the 25 pounds that Rumbled was hiding out in front of them, and then take their share of 75 pounds as well. Sounds right? like so Enron or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like Enron. Um, so one of them go, has to go into Rumbled's office to get the woman's number and uh, call her directly. Peacock has the same idea. And he's inspecting the diamond through a magnifying glass, three carats, 58 facets. How could he possibly see that, first of all, with a dime store magnifying glass? And, of course, snooty, snotty Captain Peacock knows about diamonds. Right, and I was actually thinking about that, too, when I saw it. It's, it's, he's like a renaissance man. Like, he knows everything about everything. Um, Somehow, I just knowing his character, I wouldn't be surprised that he can just look at it. Not, oh, he knows it's fifty-eight carat or fifty-eight facets. I don't know. Like it is ridiculous, but it just seems that's kind of the person that he's his character is. But yeah, but, yeah, I've never seen a so three anyway, carat diamond. Let me tell you. Yeah. So <laughs> the the customer's telephone number starts with nine six five, and so at that time um, in the states as well as there, your your first three numbers of your telephone number, your telephone exchange, were geographical. It was based, it was based on your neighborhood. And so that would have been um, Elgar up in Harlesden, which is uh, NW10 
uh, on the northern end of the Bakerloo line, so like past Kilburn Park. In London. That wasn't a posh area. So I don't know where this rich, rich woman who uh, is wearing a thousand pound necklace is living uh, in this neighborhood that was really known for uh, a lot of crime later on. You know, it it was the heart of reggae culture in the 1970s, but in the 90s and the aughts, it really became known for like the heartland of gun crime in greater London. I wonder if back then it was... Maybe it was posh in the 70s. I mean, I wonder if, like, the... To, it really wasn't. It was, uh, like, working class. Oh, I wonder if maybe... I don't know. That's so funny. Maybe, um, I mean, that's such a very... Again, that's a very Jeff thing to notice. I would have never thought, what would what does that number signify? Where would that be located? That's that's cool. Um, Continuity so, error, yeah, writers. See, I'm shaking my finger at light, That's your job. There you go. Move to Hollywood. So, anyway, the ladies are on their hands and knees looking around for the diamond... Uh, Miss Brahms taps, t- taps Mrs. Slocum on the rear, and she thinks it's Peacock, and she's incensed. But it turns out that Miss Brahms found it and sticks it down her bra. Miss Slocum starts scheming to figure out how they get the biggest share, um, and we get a little bit of physical comedy with the diamond slipping down inside Miss Brahms' tights, and they've got to um, cut the toe off, right? <laughs> so Lucas makes his way into Rumble's office to get the phone number and to call the lady directly. And on the way, he gooses uh, the secretary. I know, bad boy. I, I, I didn't like that. Yeah. Um, it is the same secretary as the pilot. Uh, we do get a couple of rotating secretaries throughout the, yeah. se- the series. But so far, this one has a little bit of staying power. Uh, and the actress who pay- played her is uh, Stephanie Gathercole. Uh, and she actually does the voiceover on the theme song. Oh, really? Round floor perfumery stationery and leather goods. Oh, yeah. interesting. Her voice. Okay. Yeah. I, I know that so, very well as the that does suit Madam Players sang the intro. Uh, we had a cast of about 40 people make that song. So you're welcome, listeners. And, and now they've all been shipped to northern Mississippi to work. You know, in it's, it's, it's a whole tax scheme we have. <laughs> anyway, uh, Lucas walks in on Peacock speaking to the woman and he discovers that the reward was uh, a thousand pounds. Peacock tries to hunt under on the desk when Lucas comes in. <laughs> Lucas starts doing the, the same impersonation of, um, of, of Mr. Rumbold. Uh, he puts on the glasses and then even sticks out his ears <laughs> to hear himself. And Peacock catches him in the act, right? Yeah. Um, and then Slocum comes in to negotiate the lion's share. Uh, and this is the first time that she says, I am in unanimous in this. I thought that was the first time. I am, and I am unanimous in this. And so everyone agrees that whoever finds the diamond gets the reward. And Miss Brahms is ready to announce the big news when Humphreys comes in with Mr. Granger to say that he found the diamond. And everyone is shocked. Lucas pulls out his. Mr. Rumble pulls out his. Mrs. Slocum pulls out theirs. And they find out that they're actually rhinestones from the altar dresses. They're mounted on the back for sewing on. Uh, So they're not diamonds, right? Um, So Beryl, the operator, rings... The lady's on her way for Peacock, and Rumble's like, well, show me yours because you didn't pull it out. He pulls the diamond out of his pocket, and it's the real thing. Da-da. Let's have a butcher. That's where Lucas says it. Oh, Let's yeah, have a you're right. Let's have a butcher. Does he say butcher's hook or butcher? No, just, just a butcher. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, Mrs. Slocum grabs it out of uh, his hand. She inspects it, and it's not mounted. It's the true one. Uh, young Mr. Grace and the woman come in. The others now discover that Rumbold was high, holding out on them. But young Mr. Grace decides to put in a hundred of his own money to match the reward. But it's all going to the Grace 
brother's staff home. So no one is seeing any cash in this whatsoever. Can you imagine if someone's like, no, it's okay. I'm the boss. I'll take the money and I'll donate it to something you will never use. Yeah. Uh, we get a little bit of a flub here. So uh, young Mr. Grace is is struggling with his words with the math and Rumbled has to correct him. Like, oh no, you said you'd put in a hundred pounds. Remember, sir? And, you know, they pull it off gracefully. Yeah, because, you know, I'll, I'll just say real quickly, um, what was the, the fellow's name who played young Mr. Grace? Arthur? No. No, uh, Arthur Bra was um, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Harmon. Um, no, that was Mr. Granger, Arthur Bra. Um, anyway, the, the actor who played young Mr. Grace, he was, I think, 89 or something. He's, he was quite old, and he was like an old... What's the what's the British version of vaudeville? Um, Panto. Yeah, but he was like basically he was like in the nineteen twenties doing his thing, like acting and stuff. So he was quite old. Um, I think it's really sweet, and especially in the later seasons when he would come out, everyone would clap for him, and he would have the simplest little because he was well known, and they would actually have to you know help him walk, and it was part of the act. But I think it was actually because of the actor. So it was really sweet to see how you know I would love to have been able to interview the, the folks, the, the actors on the show, to say what was it like to work with him because he was so old. In 1973, he was that old. And, you know, it was really sweet to see um, the actor who played uh, Mr. Rumbold to kind of very gently and respectfully just break the break character and say, oh, I think you meant to say 200 pounds, Mr. Grace. And then, and then he says, oh, yes, 200 pounds. I thought it was really sweet. You know, must have been a really sweet little group of people. Yeah. Um, Mr. Granger is the only one who's happy about this outcome because he's going to be the first one to benefit. <laughs> and then you see his big happy grin at the end, and that's the end of the episode. That's the end of the episode, and that's the end of the first series. Whoa, only what, four, five, five episodes? Five episodes in the first wow. series, um, but we've got 65 more to go. <laughs> A couple of special episodes probably thrown in here and there to talk about Beans of Boston and... The Australian version. We have to have an episode on the gayness of Mr. Humphreys and what does that mean? It means he was gay. Oh, that's true. And that was the end of that episode. Very quick one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, kind of so next week, next week we'll talk about the beginning of series two, which is The Clock. And that's the one where they think the store is going to force Mr. Granger to retire. Oh, that's a good one. It's a really sad one, too. It is. It is maudlin, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Whatever that means. Um, yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and I will say, um, one of the things I keep thinking about diamonds, do you think about diamonds being as valued now as they used to be in the seventies? Like, I know you're supposed to get a diamond for your wedding ring if you're a woman and blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't know, like, I don't care about diamonds. Like, do you care about diamonds? Like, I wonder if the value of diamonds. Yeah, I, I don't care about diamonds. And I think, I think there's, there's a couple of, uh, of parts to this is one, we, when we were younger, we were younger and didn't have a concept of money, right? So everything seemed – everything that was out of reach for us seemed to have the same value, yeah. right? So like I remember when I was very young, my concept of rich meant a maid, a convertible car, <laughs> and having a swimming pool. Yes, yeah. And when I got to be a teenager, you know, I had friends who had swimming pools in their backyard – and at one point in time, my dad had a convertible and I used to have a cleaning lady before the pandemic started. And I don't think that I consider any of that 
rich. Well, you do burn single dollar bills in your in your fireplace in this winter time. I will say that. I had to call you out for that, Jeff. But uh, those are hundred pound notes. Oh, well, dear. that's even better. Okay. I don't think we, I don't think they even think they have hundred pound notes, right? Doesn't it only go up to fifty? I don't know. I, I've never seen it, so I wouldn't know. I don't. Uh... Hundred euro notes. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so um, so but anyway, anyway, diamonds. Yeah, no, I I don't think in general diamonds are as valued as they were um, back then because they're not as rare. I mean, I feel like you can go into the mall and go into like a Jared's or every kiss begins with K or yeah. whatever and get a reasonably priced diamond. Sump. Well, I mean, I, of course, you know, um, there's a really, there's so many great documentaries about diamonds and how the De Beers company owns like 98% of the market of diamonds in the world. And they artificially yeah. make them rare by not selling some. So, like they only sell like a very small percent. Don't quote me on the numbers, but you know, I'm just curious conceptually, like when Mrs. Slocum holds that diamond and she says a thousand pounds, I've never hold anything as, as valuable in my hands as that. And then of course, Mr. Humphrey says, neither have I, you know, but it's just like, she was like the look in her eyes was just like, whoa. And I was wondering, like, I wonder if, if sociologically or societally, whatever, Maybe we don't care as much as they did in this 1973 about diamonds, but I don't know. Well, here, well, no, here's the thing, right? If, if that diamond was worth a thousand pounds, so with the exchange rate and inflation, oh yeah, that would be like twelve thousand dollars today. That's a lot of money. And you don't need to spend twelve thousand dollars on a diamond. Yes, twelve thousand diamond dollar diamonds exist, but that's not your only option. And I don't think that was there were options back then. I think in order to get a diamond, you had to go, get go the whole way and spend, you know, a year's salary or only be very rich. Or you know, I don't think that like zirconia existed yet. That might be it right there because cubic zirconia, which is like a manufactured diamond. That would actually make it make diamonds a lot more valuable because you could only get something that looks like a diamond that is actually a diamond. So I think you just figured it out. Yeah. So what about you guys uh, out, you guys and gals, and those who are neither um, in the world of the listener land of uh, that does suit madam? What do you think? Do you think diamonds are less a thing now? Like ladies, do you care really about diamonds, guys? Do you really worry about them? I don't know. I don't. But. Um, so listen, we'd love to hear from you. There's lots of ways you can do it. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Facebook, which we have a lot of cool graphics that we've been making. Um, the his and hers episode, there's a really cool graphic where you can vote whether you do or do not like the fancy gay ties. Yes, a tie in these fabulous gay his colors. <laughs> I'm on the side that loves them. Jeff is on the side that hates them. So you can vote for Ooh, that on the Facebook page. Just look for that does suit madam. We'll come right up. We're also on Twitter on um, does suit madam. And you can also write an email to that does suit madam. And that's with an E at gmail.com, or call the Peacock Hotline, 662-PEACOCK, 662-732-2625. So there we go. So that's the end of the episode. That's it. We'll, uh, we'll be back next week. Bye, guys. See you later. Thanks, everyone. Bye. That Dust Madam is not endorsed by the BBC, and it is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Are You Being Served is a copyrighted program of the BBC. Use only in well-ventilated areas.